Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5. Rich Uncle Pennypacks! <laughs> oh, did you wish to teach people about how horrible capitalism can be? Psych! We're gonna show them how fun it can be instead. <laughs> and I'm the iron. <laughs> Some people are like, why not the battleship or the race card? Those pieces are too flashy. The thimble is also like, takes up too much space. The iron statistically gives you an advantage because it's less noticeable on the board and allows you to slip through and not be perceived Ah, as a threat. I see, hiding in plain sight, Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Well, then, uh, t- here's a crazy scenario. I always choose the AK-47 myself, but uh, that's just me. <laughs> what were you going to ask me? Here's a crazy scenario, Holden. Get, try and stretch your imagination and just like it, just visualize this wacky idea, all right? Uh, say you live in a world where everything that you need to survive on is controlled by an increasingly small number of people. Food, shelter, uh, uh, resources like water and energy, uh, even just common things like transportation are all being consolidated and consolidated to the point where uh, you really have no choice, to the point where the very idea of competition uh, is so foregone that even in the face of blatant uh, record profits, corporations are raising their prices knowing that the scant few Uh, challengers are also in sync with them in order to extract the maximum from the everyday consumer. Meanwhile, all of your friends are working really, really hard for hours upon hours upon hours and terrible jobs that they do not like at all and see their take-home pay being able to buy less and less and less to the point where now there's uh, homeless people in places you didn't see homeless people before. There's uh, your options for where you can live and how you can live are just completely uh, shrinking, say, you know, from what you perceive from your parents and their parents before them. And uh, on top of all of that, uh, there just doesn't seem to be any way out. In fact, when you turn on your media, when you listen to stories about what's in the news, it's all stories of these extravagantly wealthy people and their insane mansions and weird personal feuds. You feel like a prisoner. You feel less than human. Um, and also, it's the 1900s. <laughs> 
or today. So you're saying, what? How would I? Uh, how would I blow myself up? I'd strap <laughs> TNT to myself and go on a nice long walk, like somewhere. You know, I'll go in the in the middle of a meadow or something like that, so nobody else has to like clean up my guts. Uh. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is once again. The fucking whizbrew curse of just having yes. a funny little topic idea. Let's do a show on Monopoly. That'd be cute. It's and the silly, most popular right? board funny? game. It makes family board game night. It makes families fight. Rich Uncle Penny yeah, yeah. bags. Do not pass go. Do not collect a hundred dollars. <laughs> and it turns out what we are actually telling is the story of everything since time immemorial. <laughs> well, especially when it comes to our great nation of America. I mean, it is just absolute in every single way. And every the, and and by the way, we were like talking about you know we'll get into the creation of the actual game and how fucked that was. But then even in more modern times, the whole crazy thing that went down with uh, McDonald's, which McCall with McDonald's, what was which by the way, I was obsessed with that. McDonald's was my oh, like, number one place to go to eat back when that during that campaign was was happening. This was like the best thing that ever happened to me. And yet to know looking back that it was all a fix. And you know, I got a, I got a free cheeseburger every once in a while. People I mean, they come found we, a we way to right, combine but... hamburgers and the lottery. There's like the, the fucking average <laughs> American American brain had no choice but to be enthralled. <laughs> There's like eight different core like tenants of society that are all like wrapped up in the story of Monopoly. And another thing is just the game itself. That here is the most popular board game, the best selling sit down, roll dice, play with friends. And for the longest time, I didn't know anybody that actually liked playing Monopoly. I feel like we've all had those uh, sessions when we were kids where it got so late in the night that you had to like leave the board as is and you just saw it like haunting you in the morning and nobody wanted to pick it back up. Uh, Just arguments, cheating, just crying, just never a good time. And uh, one, this is just like one of the things, just, just knives to the brain on doing the research. And it turns out, when played correctly, a game of Monopoly should only take 90 minutes. Mm. It should not take any time at all. There's actually hacks you can do to speed it up as well. The reason why so many people have shitty Monopoly games is because of house rules. Like yeah. the uh, collect extra money on free parking. Free parking is the biggest mm. one probably, right? That right. probably key, yeah, keeps the game so going way too long. it people alive. Another thing is that the game is first introduced when you're playing as a small child, usually with friends and family members, and nobody wants to fucking eviscerate a (laughs) six-year-old and watch them cry. When everybody is in the game playing as intended, you are supposed to go for each other's throats. You are supposed to immediately start taking people out. And the crazy thing when it, the, the, this is, I want to save this for the end, but um, it's burning a fucking third eye in my forehead the skills of monopoly what it takes to win at monopoly uh even talking to people that play in like national championships it's 90 percent luck oh yeah you're rolling two dice there is just so many statistically uh the oranges the light blues there's if you just see where other if you're first on the rotation all of these things drastically affect your chances of winning and the 10% skill when all is said and done is just 
lying to people's faces and trying to get them to make deals that you know will fuck them over. It's yeah. a perfect metaphor for capitalism. <laughs> exactly. This system where I mean, there is one winner standing yeah. triumphant because he got lucky and lied to the right idiot at the right time. Right, right. While and, everyone and, and, else around them has nothing to show for the effort. It's like the dice is equivalent to like being born in a rich household in a, you know, the mm-hmm. right it's exact situation, you know, to take take advantage of stuff. And I mean, right now I feel like the the disparity of wealth has become so extreme uh, in this country that it is like un- it is just so in in your face. It's a really good time to do this episode. PBS felt this uh, similarly to us. It seems they also just put out a uh, hour long documentary that's great. That's really we'll be talking about all the things they talk about in the documentary. But you get some great visualizations there and some good uh, uh, people talking about how all this went down. For the longest time, there was a really convenient origin. story story of a man named Charles Darrow who was shit out of luck during the Great Depression and just on a whim decided to sit down and create this like groundbreaking board game that was uber popular uh, that he ended up uh, being able to, you know, get in the right room with the right people, a.k.a. Parker Bros, and ending up selling it. But that is not actually what happened. This man lied and cheated and stole his way to the top, as we're about to find out, much like the game of Monopoly itself. Before we go on, though, Jake Young, if that is your real fucking name, which I know it's not, I think it's Melvin Curtis. And I think you've been lying to me all this time. First of all, the Melvin. name Jake Young is way less <laughs> fake sounding than Holden McNeely. <laughs> so how dare you? How dare you? That's right. It is I, <laughs> Mr. P- Pennybags or whatever his name is. Um, Wait, hold it quick. Imagine uh, Rich Uncle Pennybags (laughs) or Mr. Monopoly. That's his current official name. Yeah. Yeah. Is he wearing a monocle? Yes. He does not. That's the Mandela effect. You just got Baron Interesting. Bear. Interesting. I actually did a, my very first sketch show I did in college, we did a sketch where I played the Monopoly Man, by the way. I had no idea his original name, uh, by the way, as well, because like we had the internet, but we didn't like have the internet like that. Wikipedia wasn't a thing. But uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, Melvin, what your uh, uh, history was with the game. We haven't done the gush. I mean, for me personally, I mean, come on, it's undeniable, but but I agree that like it started as just this bog standard board game. It was right there with Scrabble and Clue. And I probably played it more than any of those other games. I also really like the game of life a lot. Really? And I play that with uh, my brother. That was a lot more uh, honest in its mm-hmm. approach to America. Like you right away find your lot in life, mm-hmm. you know, and like really quickly, if you land on the right squ- squares, you mm-hmm. know where you're headed essentially in terms of like your, your lifetime success. Monopoly is so much more insidious and so much more uh, deceptive in how it makes you turn on your family and stuff. But over time, it became this thing that we all widely accepted was just this like evil board game that lives in our house. And especially, you know, I think it kind of got a resurgence during pandemic times because everybody turned to board games at some point if they lived with the family. Well, I feel like the uh, preponderance of games like Settlers of Catan and Cards Against Humanity and that whole tabletop revolution, I power line, I'm leaving so much out, Ticket to Ride, all of these things is specifically they kind of took what made Monopoly good and like actually made it more dynamic and social rather than this clusterfuck of opportunism and unfairness that is the actual game. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, 
I mean, first of all, as a lonely kid, I think I played a lot of Monopoly games on me own, but mm. I did play the shit out of Monopoly. But ever since childhood, I've really honestly, genuinely looked at it as this kind of evil thing. Not not because I'm like, oh, it reflects capitalism even, but it just made families fight and <laughs> people get into arguments. And like so much of the game, you know, the whole game is like, I don't win until you lose. Like mm -hmm. it's this slow, painful death that that most of the people playing just have to experience from like about 30 minutes in mm -hmm. until the end of the game. Or maybe you could say an hour, but it, it, the, yes, the games lasted way too long. And it involved a lot of like just really like unfun playtime for the everyone but the winner, mm -hmm. you know? I don't understand why it's so fucking popular. <laughs> I just don't get it. So there's, I, I mean, if we get into it, there's a lot of things that it did do uniquely. Um, in the original patent from Lizzie McGee that we'll get into, this was one of the first um, looped board games. Yes. Whereas previously, if you think of something like Candyland or even earlier than that, something like Ludo, Snakes Ludo and Ladders. Chris, my favorite hip hopper. Yeah, totally. He has hoes in all of the area codes. <laughs> there was a beginning um, and an end. You are hitting a goal. And board games were used a lot uh, for the purposes of like teaching lessons and telling a story. The game of life is about making smart decisions and like you know, uh, virtues and vice. Snakes and Ladders originally started as like a Buddhist parable about like uh, your desires and vices versus like proper meditation and prayer. By the way, it shoots in ladders. You're not being attacked by snakes while trying to climb oh, up a snakes, ladder. It was originally Snakes and Ladders when they oh, marketed cool. to America and took out like the moralism. They turned it into shoots and ladders. But Snakes and Ladders is the oldest game. Mousetrap's about how you can slowly trap and murder a, mo a mouse. Which is fun. It was also, you know, the uh, the idea of negotiation and trading and engaging with each other outside of just rolling the dice, moving your pieces, uh, made it very social. It was like the ultimate werewolf or Cards Against Humanity of its era. It was remarkably social for its time. And uh, the fact that, you know, in, uh, in Lizzie McGee's original game, you were supposed to play the, you know, the Monopoly version as we know it, have everyone lose and feel bad, and then play a second round where all of the resources were gathered collectively. And it was supposed to showcase how using these principles of the uh, Georgist single tax system, you could create a system where everybody wins. Literally, everyone has enough and it's like fun and fine. And the horror is just that, that's not a game. That's just a weird simulation you have to run with a table full of people. And so the uh, version of the game where you actually had to connive and cheat and plan and win triumphantly was the one that got the most traction. Yeah, 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 totally. And that's what's so funny to me because we're just so inherently shitheads. Do you think that's an American thing, though? Or do you think that that's actually... No, Monopoly uh, is popular all over the world. Yeah, it's true. The aesthetics of hitting it rich, you know, diamond rings and fancy cars and, uh, you know, man hotels on boardwalk are all things... We all want plenty. We all want the fantasy to be rich. And, uh, you know, it's this is some capitalist realism shit, not to get, like, too fucking wonky academic with this, but, like... It is easier to imagine the 
death of the world than the death of capitalism in most people's heads. Like the system is so burnt into our minds that the very idea that we could like as a society change things or even just adjust the dials so that the punishment for losing and the prize for winning are just a little more balanced is just inconceivable to most people. Um, And it even ties into uh, how monopolies worked back then because uh, this was during a period with a lot of political push to break up the trusts. Standard Oil, U.S. Steel, all of these massive, you know, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, all these people were trying, you know, the Americans actually rose up and demanded that their government, like, make a more sensible system with more competition and fairer rules. And it took decades of indoctrination by the wealthy to kind of create this rah-rah free market uh, it's a fair system. If you're not rich, that's your fault. Temporarily embarrassed millionaire world that we live in. And in the center of this cosmic struggle for human dignity is this fucking piece of cardboard that maybe you bought the Simpsons edition because you bought the Simpsons. Maybe you bought the millennial edition where you don't get to buy property because millennials can't own houses. Ah, I didn't know that existed. Maybe the version where you're a Yankees fan, you bought the Yankees edition. It just became this object, this this just the idea of Monopoly was even more powerful than the actual game itself, which, as we admit, is not that fun. <laughs> Absolutely not fun at all. I that That's what so blows me away. But I'll tell you what, it does have that cute little Scotty dog. Am I right? Everybody oh, I love loves the Scotty, Scotty dog. dog out there. He loves the Scotty dog, guys. Come on. You like him. He's, he's nuzzling. You know what I mean? He's nuzzling. He's drinking the water. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's tell the story finally. Let's get into it. Let's tell Lizzie's story. All right. Is, uh, real quick, Jake. Is it, uh, this is a side note. Is it Elizabeth Maggie or Ma- or like Magy? So despite the fact that it is not spelled with like the Scottish Mick, like Mac- McDonald's or whatever, it's McGee. McGee. Okay, great. I was going to mess that up. M-A-G-I-E. Okay, here we go. M-A-G-I-E. McGee. Elizabeth McGee was born in Illinois in 1866. Her father was a newspaper publisher and devoted abolitionist who traveled around with Abraham Lincoln for his debates with Stephen Douglas. So she was always in the cut on political stuff and on a certain side of political stuff. The right side. You can just say the the, right side. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'll say, we'll kind of say like straight up the right side. Lizzie was a pretty brilliant lady. She worked as a stenographer and typist, but she also wrote short stories and poetry, acted and performed comedy 
comedy for the stage. She was also an engineer who, at the age of 26, invented a way for paper to be fed into the typewriter more easily, making them perform better. Also, also, she was a feminist and an activist and a big supporter of Georgism, which was this approach to taxation that focused on land, a universal tax that was based on the location, size, and usefulness of said land. And the government would get their funding based on this, and then the rest would go back to the people. It was very much a anti-monopoly sort of system. It was a way because she hated that inequality. That was a huge, huge issue for her, especially as we move towards the Great Depression. So first of all, look up a picture of young uh, Elizabeth Lizzie McGee. She was cute. She had like a powerful energy. She was a uh, she was on the stage and she was even a shit poster. She like the 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 parallels to the modern day are so fucking amazing that I the more I think about it again the more just the electricity in my nervous system starts to like going fucking goo goo gaga. Uh, she famously put out an ad in a Chicago area newspaper claiming to be a woman for sale. Uh, like hello there, I am young, educated, industrious, hardworking, and uh, not unpretty. Unfortunately, I am a woman in America and cannot live on my own. Uh, and so the comparison to just like the uh, just the sheer lack of women's rights in America to like the slave trade was supposed to be this insane kind of mind blowing thing. She was despondent when people started uh, posting prices for her. And uh, it was just like she was always a shitster. She was always out, not just in her own private life, but to actually spread awareness of issues. And one of those things that she did to spread these issues was to create this game based on the principles of economist Henry George, who um, the book is called Progress and Poverty. It has a lot of very interesting ideas about how, uh, you know, for certain resources like oil, like land, like fish, like all anything that is just naturally from the earth that you uh, really should, in fact, just belong collectively to society because otherwise you're just rewarding weirdos who just happen to, like, put their fence around it first. Enclosure. Of her game, Lizzie had this to say. It is a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. It might well have been called the game of life as it contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world. And the object is the same as the human race in general seems to have, i.e. the accumulation of wealth. So this initial game incorporated play money, deeds, and properties for purchase. Players also had to pay taxes. And the path around the outcome of the board was actually kind of novel for its time, as Jake said. Um, the four corners also were the poorhouse and public park. These were free spots folks were sent to when they ran out of money. Uh, jail and across from it was Lord Blue Blood's estate. No trespassing. Go to jail. And finally, you had the beginning space where you could collect $100 each time you got back to it. On it was written, labor upon Mother Earth produces wages. So rad. So rad. Yeah, I love it. Lizzie said the rallying and chafing of the others when one player finds himself uh, an inmate of the jail and the expressions of mock sympathy and condolence when one is obliged to betake himself to the poorhouse make a large part of the fun and merriment of the game. But the most interesting twist on the initial version of the game was that Lizzie in introduced two sets of rules. One was an anti-monopolist rule set. It was referred to as prosperity, wherein everyone playing was rewarded when wealth was created. 
boring. <laughs> and then there was the Monopolist rule set that had players trying to achieve Monopoly status so they could make miserable the lives of everyone else they were playing with. And the funny thing is... It was kind of boring, this pr- prosperity rule set, though it proved its point for sure. That's kind of the idea. Everybody got along and there was no sense of like cutthroat competition. And so the game was kind of uneventful. Again, I have to I have to stress that all board games were boring back then. <laughs> the original game of life, boring as shit. Yeah. Shoots and ladders, boring as shit. Candyland, boring as shit. Like it was all about learning lessons through play take rabbit to the carrot there was also put <laughs> your shoes on the board game which was horrifically walk boring with mildred terrible <laughs> walk with mildred was so bad dude every single time it's just like let's go now to the library and then you'd go to the library guess what nothing happened and then she'd say let's go to the hair salon <laughs> uh just brutal stuff i mean apparently apparently the suicide rate went up during this time of board games it most point to how boring the board games were to play at home the fu- <laughs> so lizzie spent years de- developing this thing and took it to the u.s patent office in march of 1903 it was later published via the economic game company of which lizzie was part owner along with other georgists she ran with. Over the next three decades, the game found little pockets of popularity, including left-wing youth on college campuses, and most importantly, some Quakers in Atlantic City. So there's a whole period of time where this game, and uh, it actually, when we get to Parker Brothers, it actually brings up a very good point. Most board games were folk games. At this mm. time, like you, right. there was nobody Passed who down, owned word of mouth. It yeah. was like storytelling. It was not something that was bought and sold. It was just, and, and in fact, all, a lot of the rules of the most popular games out there were developed over many years through right. word of mouth and through different, you know, uh, nobody uh, owns chess. Nobody owns yeah. backgammon. Nobody owns checkers. And so, for a lot of these board games, it was a similar kind of thing where people iterate and pass it around and re create it based on memory and end up creating whole new games based on the original one. And so um, the game kind of uh, is centered around the Pennsylvania area. Uh, it makes its way to Pennsylvania's uh, Wharton School of Finance, where it becomes popular with the students there. Uh, by this time, it is basically just known as the finance game and the whole prosperity yeah. angle has been very diluted at this point. <laughs> But it's still it's showing up with uh, just up and down this Midwest and the and the Northeast. Uh, Columbia University has copies of the game floating around. Williams College has the game floating around. But as you said, there's one version of the game that is very fundamental to this story, and that is among the Quakers of Atlantic City. Yeah, there were accounts of the use of this game in different communities in which rules were altered, including the auctioning off of property, as well as renaming the properties to be the names of places in the town where the players lived to make it more realistic. And that mo- uh, the the one that, you know, the reason why we see a lot of the names we see, those are all Atlantic City landmarks uh, now, from this time. If you look at the uh, census data from around the time the Quakers were playing this game and match it to the adjacent neighborhoods on the Monopoly board. It's weird. Uh, Mediterranean Avenue and Baltic Avenue, 
That's where a lot of uh, low-income black communities were. Mm-hmm. That's weird. And uh, Vermont Avenue and Connecticut Avenue, that's where recent Jewish immigrants lived. And those are the two cheapest parts of the board. That's weird. That's that's odd that those are the lowest rent places. And then mm-hmm. as you get to places like New York Avenue and Tennessee Avenue, it gets to more of a middle class out uh, income, wider income. And then by the time you get to uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, Park Place and Boardwalk, that's where the rich people live. And it's the highest traffic business districts. Huh. Funny that. <laughs> Everything! Monopoly is about everything! (laughs) And this is when Charles Darrow enters the picture. Charles Darrow, he... uh, I have different accounts. One one says he sold space heaters door to door, but also I saw somewhere else he, he repaired said space heaters and that was his deal um this was uh, by the way also when the great depression enters the picture so daro is struggling a lot during this time as a salesman getting fired from jobs not really you know i mean everybody's struggling at this point i mean it is the great depression so as legend would have it Darrow and his wife visited a friend of theirs named Charles Todd and his wife, and they had a copy of this interesting real estate board game that they were super into, and they wanted to show it off. And Darrow ends up loving this board game. So Charles Todd, hey, he makes him a, a set of, of his own to, so that he can play it at home and teaches the more complicated rules of the game. And this means the landlord's game was being passed around by word of mouth, no longer had its namesake um, for what it was so it's this deluded thing this just weird game that his friends somehow got a hold of uh through word of mouth and whatnot and so um you know during this time by the way lizzie is fighting hard to keep the game in production she manages to get a second edition of the game published in 1932 in an attempt to uh capitalize on its resurgence and popularity on college campuses uh however this was short-lived so she has not like forgotten about her game she is very 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 well aware of like the fact that it is having these little pops in different parts of the country and things like that and trying to get ahead of it and failing at it, unfortunately. So finally, after years of financial struggle, Darrow has an idea. He calls up his friend and he says, hey, Charles, love the game. Can you write me out all the rules? I I would love a written copy of them all. So like... This is where the things begin with Charles Darrow, where you literally find out it's not just that he didn't come up with this game. He didn't do anything. He got this is this is the most American part of this story. He got everyone else to do all the work for him and then took all of the credit. I mean, nothing could be more uh, uh, more uh, American than that, I feel like. So Charles Todd, uh, during discovery in a massive lawsuit that we'll get into later, uh, claims that Uh, A couple of weeks after he sent him the rules, he started seeing flyers around town that claimed that uh, Charles Darrow was unveiling his brand new game and he was holding live demonstrations, a fascinating, bold new game by Charles Darrow. And it literally Darrow is like, Darrow and wife are like avoiding the Todds, <laughs> like the plague, crossing the street to like not interact with them. They're literally like, is this something we did? Like the most scummy fucking like rat fuck 
bullshit coming from the from Charles Darrow. He just seems like literally the it's guy in the BBS documentary. The, you says, made this. I made this meme. There's a guy literally in the BBS documentary who just straight up says Charles Darrow is a charlatan, <laughs> and I and no truer words have been uttered in my opinion. He he decides to tr- obviously try his hand at creating this board game. Uh, he started out with round pieces of oil cloth for the game board. He drew the designs of the properties with drafting pins and his son and wife colored in the spaces and also made the title the card The original deeds. versions of Handmade Monopoly made by Charles Darrow in the circular uh, design was the exact size and shape of his kitchen table because that's how he knew to cut the cloth. Gotcha. That is how homemade these early versions are. So this design did include the large red arrow for Go, the black railroad locomotives, the faucet for Waterworks, and the light bulb for Electric Company, as well as the question marks on the chance spaces. But you know what? Charles didn't do any of that. He hired a graphic artist to do it for him. And then I believe I have an account that said he never paid him. Maybe he paid. Maybe that's not the same guy, but uh, uh, definitely the guy who came up with the characters. And we'll talk about the characters later. Never got paid. Literally, when I was doing this research first and, you know, I feel like at this point, if you're fairly Internet adept, you've read enough like mental floss articles or learned some enough like, hey, did you know facts to uh, know that about like you maybe you didn't know Lizzie McGuire's name, but like, did you know that Monopoly was actually made by some lady? But in my head, I was like, well, this Darrow guy's pretty uh, sketchy. But hey, that visual design language was so neat. That visual right. design language was so iconic and like clean. And, you know, he deserves credit for that. At least, Nope. Some artist whose name has been lost <laughs> to time yeah. was the one who did that. Uh, it will say, I believe it was one of uh, Darrow's uh, grandchildren that revealed that the colors on the Monopoly board, the light blue, the brown, the dark blue, the green, the yellow, the red, the orange, the magenta, were all chosen specifically because they were the cheapest colors at the paint store near the Darrow house. There you go. Darrow then got a copyright for this game in 1933. And by 1934, he was printing the game on cardboard and was selling it at Wanamaker's department store in Philadelphia until later that year when it was purchased by... That's right. It's time to bring in Parker Brothers. Interestingly enough, uh, founder George Swinnerton Parker's philosophy on board games was that they should be played for fun purely without having to teach any morals or values. He was one of the first people to bring that in. Of course, by the way, I love to even have uh, to get to say this. Of course, that's why there was a time when board games were thought to be evil. Ooh, those evil board games. You thought pinball was the devil's plaything. Wait till your kids are landing on colored squares. (laughs) He He created his first game, Banking, in 1883 at the age of 16. The game, which had players borrowing money from the bank in order to try and accumulate wealth, was so popular among his family and friends that his brother Charles Parker pushed him to publish it, which he managed to do with his own money. He then managed to sell almost all the copies he made for a profit of $100, and that's what propelled him to found his own game company, which he called the George S. Parker Company. This was renamed after his brother Charles joined the business in 1880. 
They were riding the rising tide of the games industry in America, and their game Rook was an early hit that kept them afloat. However, it was the publishing of Monopoly that really made the company take off into the realm of mega success. Uh, They actually did reject it at first in 1934. It was just because it was selling really well during the Christmas season in both Philly and I guess somehow he got it into FAO Schwartz in New York City as well. Uh, And and those those tables uh, or boards or kits or whatever you want to call it sold out. Uh, So they went back and contacted Darrow and said, hey, we'll take it on. So to understand what Parker Brothers does in the next part of this story, you have to understand that Parker Brothers was actively fighting against the fact that for most Americans, all games were folk games. It was Parker Brothers that originally brought ping pong to America, and they immediately lost sales because companies would just release cheaper versions and call it table tennis. They originally brought Mahjong to America, the uh, like the weird westernized version of Mahjong that maybe your great aunt still plays. They lost out to that because competitors just made the, their own versions of that. So, Jake, wait, are you saying that, like, they were upset because board games were just kind of free for the people and they really were trying to get a monopoly on it? (laughs) I would, Holden. I would. So when Monopoly is first created, was is first like signed, was first printed by Parker Brothers, supposedly the entire city of Salem, Massachusetts was like mobilized to help like assemble the boards, print the boards, get everything going. Well, you got to know, this is from the PBS documentary. They stated that like all of the board games at this time were coming out of the Northeast, were being made and then manufactured in the Northeast. Specifically, Salem is like a big hub. And yeah, the game ends up being so successful and so popular that it sells out like crazy and they have to push all of their resources and efforts into mass producing this game. So yeah, it literally takes over the town. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And there's a lot of reasons why. One is the social aspect that we talked about that was innovative. One is the uh, the loop gameplay that is, like, innovative. And just the fact that, like, you get to, in a, in a period of abject poverty, in a, a period of such desperation that we still are scared to refer to anything else as a depression, you know, you got to play with big stacks of money and, like, go on the railroad and buy property. And there was the, the luck of the community chest and the chance cards. It was it was a compelling package and it was relatively cheap compared to a lot of other forms of entertainment. It really was just a piece of uh, silk on a glued to cardboard with a couple of wooden cubes attached. 
and some like uh, lead, I assume lead, I don't know, tin pieces of metal in the mix. But here's the thing. The origin story is way too convenient. They are hit Charles Darrow up and they're like, can you please write us out like your story of creating Monopoly? He writes this incredibly convenient, as we said, oh, I just was struggling financially and decided to create this board game to entertain myself. And, you know, they're like, okay, I think they know, they must know, this is bullshit. Like we, they, they end up somehow become getting wise to the existence of the landlord's game. So much so that in 1935, I believe I... I have it uh, for $500 under the condition that the Parker brothers would continue to publish both Monopoly as well as her game. They purchase the rights for her game for publishing. And Lizzie is ecstatic. Lizzie is so happy. Finally, this company is going to popularize this important message I'm getting trying to get across to Americans about taxation. Oh, this is the best thing that ever happened. So this is where things get really weird or just fucky, just genuinely fucky. Uh, George Swinnerton Parker comes out of retirement to get uh, to get Lizzie McGee in a meeting and he wines and dines her, talks about all the grand things that like he'll do, how he believes in her, how such a grand injustice he is dedicated to solving. And the five hundred dollar fee is ten thousand dollars if you adjust for inflation, which is, you know, a pretty significant chunk of change. Oh, wow. But. Darrow negotiated for royalties, mm-hmm. not a one-time fee, in perpetuity to the point where every copy of Monopoly sold still gets a cut sent to the Darrow family, to the Darrow estate to this day. So, like, the in terms of just, like, material benefit for one for stealing an idea and one for actually creating an idea... Uh, the 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 disproport the inequality in the two deals is astronomical. But to be fair, Lizzie did say in a Washington Star interview that it was all right with her quote if she never made a dime so long as the Henry George single tax idea was spread to the people of the country. So of course, Parker Brothers they spread her idea, right, Jake? Jake? Well, Jake. Weirdly enough, they did release. Uh, the Landlord's Game, as well as other games by Lizzie McGuire. They had her face and name printed on the box, although they attributed her as the originator of famous games and not creator mm. of Monopoly, which is a weird Wow, so they even kind of admit it. That's weird. I can't believe they did that. You That's can find crazy. the boxes on various board game like uh, resources. Except they really didn't uh, print a lot of them. Nope. Kind of maybe just like the bare minimum that they could print in order to claim that they followed up their side of the agreement. And also, weirdly... They did nothing to promote it at all. Yeah. The key part of the Landlord's Game, the key thing that makes it a beautiful analogy for the single-tax Georgia system, was that there were the prosperity rules that highlights just how efficient and wonderful and um, just just fair this more social system of arranging uh, property can be. Uh, Parker Brothers used a clause in the contract that gave them editorial control to completely omit that rule set from the game. Yep. So she got 
completely fucked and realizes this after a little bit of time. That edition, by the way, the third edition came out in 1939. They end up recall- recalling it after promoting it at not at all. And uh, very, very few copies of the game survived all of this. They destroyed all of these games. So even just to have this like relic of the Landlord's Game third printing by the Parker Bros, which is a fascinating item to have, <laughs> uh, definitely take it to your Antiques Roadshow uh, t- <laughs> taping for sure if you've got one. She also also made other games like uh, I think one's called like the King's Men and another one was called like Bargain Day that were released yeah, yeah. in very small batches by so another Brothers. one that was really interesting was called Fuck the Police which I thought was pretty <laughs> strong language no no for. it was called Fornicate the Constable it was you have to remember it was old timey <laughs> times <laughs> Good one, Jake. That's why he makes the big bucks, ladies and gentlemen. That's I do not make it. the big bucks. Please subscribe to <laughs> the Patreon. That's why he should be making the big bucks. If you subscribe to the Patreon, he could be making Go the big Patreon. bucks. Go to patreon.com slash whizbrew, and I promise more old-timey fuck the police jokes than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> So, <laughs> so um, uh, Lizzie is, of course, pissed when she realizes what's going on. She does interviews for the Washington Post and the Washington Evening Star. There's a picture of her in the Washington Even- Evening Star holding up her game of Monopoly. Uh, I'm sorry, holding up her game and Monopoly next to each other to show how similar the two games are. She dies in 1948, a widow with no children. She had at one point listed her occupation in the census as, quote, maker of of games, uh, end quote, and her annual income was listed as zero dollars. They also had a uh, to reckon with the other games that came out at that time, like Finance, which was also a de- derivative of the Landlord's Game, which Parker Brothers purchased the rights of as well as other games like Inflation, Big Business, Fortune, and Easy Money, all of which had to go to the courts. So they removed the folk from the game they removed this this idea that this was a title that could travel around word of mouth and be uh recreated in all these different ways they single-handedly managed to create their first monopoly on a game on a board game with the it's game like if monopoly. major league baseball figured out a way to like shut down little leagues because they right. owned baseball it's just like <laughs> It's too fucking dystopian. So a little, a little bit about, or what do you want? What did you want to get into right now? Is I, I'm kind of breaking off into different little subjects you know, before we, we get to. Uh, so, so yes, that's the story of Lizzie McGee. That's where things lie right now for mm-hmm. Lizzie McGee. She may get a little bit of a redemption in the '70s. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But before we do, let's talk about some of the details of Monopoly, some of the historical aspects of the game. First of all, the play pieces. The 1935 Parker Brothers uh, first edition of Monopoly was the first to feature the classic die-cast metal tokens for playing pieces. The first of which were a battleship, a cannon, a clothes iron, a shoe, a top hat, and a thimble. By 1943, you had 10 tokens. The battleship, the boot, the cannon, horse and rider, the iron, the race car, the Scotty dog. Hey. Gotta love him. You gotta love him, gotta love him, gotta tickle him till he dies. What? What? I'm sorry. What happened? The Let, thimble. Don't kill your, st- your Scotty dog. 
<laughs> the top hat and the wheelbarrow. Uh, and this was the gold standard until Hasbro took the reins. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, but uh, we'll just say about the pieces. After a public poll, a new piece was introduced in 1998, the Bag of Money. Uh, they had a few different options. The Bag of Money won. In 2000, the Cannon and Horse and Rider were retired. And in 2007, the Bag of Money was retired as well. In 2013, another ad campaign uh, public vote took place. Mm. This is all post Hasbro shit. Uh, and that equated to the retirement of the iron, Jake's beloved iron. Mm. And it was replaced with unbelievable with a cat. Come on, people. I mean, if it had How to be replaced you. with anything, I'm glad little Mr. Whiskers. Oh, did the internet vote for a cat? Yeah. Wow. Shocker. 2017. This is blue M&Ms all over again. Yeah, seriously. Put them in the high. Put them in stripper heels, I say. <laughs> Make them sexy again. No, I want to be. Green I think about, that's green M&Ms. I want to think about getting in that tushy, okay? I don't want to be sitting there thinking about how flat her shoes are. Ew. In 2017, the thimble, wheelbarrow, and boot were retired and replaced with a penguin, a T-Rex, and a rubber duck, Okay, which I find to be detestable. Lastly, the T-Rex was replaced with the thimble in regular sets of Monopoly. That's where it lies right now. Uh, Don't really understand how a T-Rex relates to American capitalism in the during the Great Depression era, but... In the original rules as uh, listed in, by Charles Darrow... Uh, it was implied that the tokens that you use were supposed to be just shit from around the house, like a thimble or just loose jewelry charms, which come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And that's why these little weird metal thingies became of seemingly random origin became the uh, the 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 de rigueur. Of the but they were such a standout. I feel like every other game you played had these flimsy plastic pieces oh, yeah. as tokens and that. Sorry, worst pieces, terrible pieces on that sorry. metal that like the weight of those pieces really made them a standout. And there was something about the different archetypes of, of the pieces like you weirdly were drawn to a certain piece. I think for me, it was usually the race car. Me too. There was always like everybody kind of like had their piece mm-hmm. that they went for. And it never really like was like, oh, yeah, he's a race car guy. But you just like had this weird affinity. You always like took on an affinity for one of the always pieces. Always beware weird the about cannon it guy. Nobody. Yeah, you keep an eye no, on like, Likes the cannon guy. He's doing stuff under the table, that's for sure. And it ain't non-sexual, I'll tell you that much. Uh, let's talk about Mr. Monopoly. His original name, of course, Rich Uncle Pennybags. He was introduced by Parker Brothers in 1936. He was created by a cartoonist named Franklin F.O. Alexander. And he was hired by Parker to provide illustrations. So this is not the same guy. So maybe that other artist, mm. graphic designer, at least got paid. Okay. This is a different guy. He apparently did not get paid. <laughs> he was hired to provide illustrations featured on the Chance and Community chess cards, as well as the board. The artist also created the other characters... And the other characters had actual names. That's what you come to Wizard of the Bruiser for. It's Jake the Jailbird was the guy <laughs> behind bars, and which is that's kind of funny. And Officer Edgar Mallory was the name of the cop character. Yeah, they all had. It's kind of like uh, Tetris, right? They all had specific like names oh, and yes. stuff. And we never knew. No one knew them. And yeah, he didn't get Parker Brothers didn't fucking pay this guy. What a f- that is what you talk about like the the visual language I and mean, the colors you don't get and everything. Rich I mean, paying people the fair wage they deserve for the labor they exactly. do. That's literally 
That's how you Those are, get rich. That imagery, and especially Mr. Monopoly, it is so iconic that it's insane the the, the lack of credit any of these people got for their hard work. Uh, obviously, the character reaches peak in Ace Ventura 2 when <laughs> Jim Carrey famously uttered the phrase, and you must be the Monopoly guy. <laughs> and then he punched him and like wore him like a fur coat. Punched him. Yeah, that was fun. It's part of deep Monopoly lore. Is it's Also, for no too. reason, I want to bring up the part of Naked Gun 2 where the guy has the tattoo in the shape of Whistler's mother <laughs> on his ass. I just love that. Why? It's a great visual gag. It's a great visual gag. Uh, anywho, uh, there is one... Most everything about this story is like not good, but there is one little cool anecdote from World War II. During that time, the British Secret Service actually worked with John Waddington Limited, which is the maker of board games in the UK who had gotten the Monopoly license uh, internationally, which was a thing around that time. By the way, the game got so popular, Parker Brothers managed to sell the license all over the world and have this whole international market for the game. Oh, part of the reason why there's so many goddamn uh, special editions of Monopoly is because the Parker Brothers or now Hasbro license is like was given to companies all over the world who were all free to make their own version. So uh, the UK group was John Waddington Limited and uh, the British Secret Service, they hit them up to make special editions of the game for prisoners of war that were being held by the Nazis. Hidden within the game box were maps, compasses, real money, and other items that could lead to their escape, such as metal files. The compasses and files were disguised as pieces. The money was hidden beneath the fake money. And the maps were hidden within the game board itself. The board games made their way to the prisoners via fake charity organizations established by the British Secret Service. And the way to tell they were the special Monopoly sets is that a red dot was printed on the free parking space. Mm -hmm. If you have that red dot you better best be looking up the tapings for antiques roadshow you better believe an old man's gonna tell you it's worth at least a hundred to five hundred thousand dollars you break down and cry and then the old lady watching at home gets emotional for you pursue it definitely worth more than that copy of canadaopoly you bought in a toronto gift shop in 2003 <laughs> Dude, by the way, apparently this led to the freedom of like hundreds of soldiers. <laughs> this was like crazy successful. I don't understand why they wouldn't check the game pieces, especially if or they found the real money. Here's under the, the real fake question. Money. How many dudes were sitting in a prison camp playing Monopoly who had no, like, hey, I wonder if I tear this game board apart, I'll right, find a map right. to separatist France. There must have been some kind of messaging about the map. I couldn't find anything on it <laughs> other than the maps were made of silk and that was specifically so that they would make no noise mm -hmm. when a soldier was maybe trying to discreetly look at it. Also, they could really easily be hidden mm -hmm. in like your shoe or whatever, because it's like super easy to scrunch it up and everything. But I didn't I, I'm, I'm still very curious about like how the map was embedded into because I'm guessing it was inside the board like you yeah. had to cut open the board to get to it there must have been some communication like within the money or something as to Weird. where i mean as soon as i mean i guess as soon as you see these other items you have to assume maybe there's something in the board mm -hmm. i don't know regardless uh there was uh, also another little bit of a light, shining light at the end of the tunnel for old lizzie uh posthumously though unfortunately for her it was the 70s and uh there was some redemption there. There was a guy named Ralph Anspach who was an economics professor that fled Europe during wartime. And he, too, 
fucking hated monopolies he, and he hated was Jewish the game and his Monopoly. family escaped the Holocaust. Let's just yeah. let's throw that out there. So uh, already has very anti uh, corporate anti fascist leanings. And he having played enough games of Monopoly and with his expertise in economics actually got the message that Lizzie had embedded in the DNA of the game all those years ago and was like, hey, wait a minute. This game is explicitly about the horrors of capitalism and how everybody except one lucky weirdo like loses. I bet I can alter the rules and make a version of this game that showcases how anti-monopoly practices and fairer regulations and equitable taxation can actually help society for the better. And so he releases his own game, again, having no knowledge of the landlord's game. Her, McGee's story had been completely suppressed for decades at this point, creates his own version of the game called Anti-Monopoly that becomes a huge hit in leftist circles on college campuses, just like the landlord's game was all those years ago. Yep. And big old Parker Brothers swung and still had the killer instinct and immediately moved to shut that shit down. So, of course, Anspatch being the also activist that he is, he says, fuck that, I'm going to fight these guys. And uh, he starts to dig around uh, the history of the game of Monopoly and does end up catching on about its ugly, cloudy past with this Darrow guy, Darrow guy, and um, the fact that, uh, you know, they weren't the sole creators of this very popular game. Uh, He then invested in the case against Parker Bros. And while also running ads in newspapers all over the country, and he's finally telling Lizzie's story. Yep, that's right. He gets the landlord's game. He totally figures out that this is all like this total uh, sham of a of a of a board game history. And you know, this fight lasts for years. It, he comes very close to bankruptcy. Uh, I- ironically enough, he he ends up taking out three mortgages on his house to cover the legal fees, while also turning down a settlement offer of over half a million dollars. Like Lizzie, he didn't give a fuck about the money. He gave a fuck about the message. It's pretty cool stuff. This guy's really great. He's in the documentary, by the way, and it's really, really fascinating the, the what this person went through just to take down Big Parker. I mean, it's it got so bad at one. Uh, I forget which particular uh, circuit of the ruling. Parker Brothers got the right to raid his warehouse and very publicly destroy all known copies of the game. And it wasn't wow. until the case was appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme in 1983, the Supreme Court rules in his favor and refused Parker Brothers claim over anti-monopoly. He later put out a book about the whole thing titled The Billion Dollar Monopoly Swindle. Anspach would later be interviewed by a documentarian in the early aughts, and the footage was later pulled by PBS for a documentary that was recently released titled Ruthless Monopoly's Secret History. And uh, he had this to say about uh, Ives is the documentarian had this to say about introducing his kids to the game. It's like the early Beatles or Disneyland or something. When are they going to be ready? What you don't realize, what you don't really realize is that you're performing this ritualistic introduction to raw, unbridled American style capitalism. You're saying this is how society works. This is how you have fun and crush other people. Very strange stuff. I don't think I'll have Monopoly in my house. 
Mm. For my kids growing up. But what I, if I there's a Lego edition? Now. What if there's <laughs> a fucking uh, Bob's well, Burgers Oh, you're right. I have to get the Big Bang edition, Big Bang Theory <laughs> edition. I, I forgot that exists. I really love Nemer and <laughs> Lucas. Mm-hmm. Who are the characters' names? Are those the characters' names? So yeah, I, it's it's such a strange relic to have in a home that is just foundational for for American families, at least for the past you know few decades. Uh, in terms of that board, I mean, every board game closet or trunk or whatever it is has a copy of Monopoly, and yet it does seem to teach a shit lesson. It does the opposite of what initial board games did. It reinforces a bad lesson, a bad ideology. Well, is it a bad lesson people? if it's the truth of the society we live in? Yes, that's true if it's reflective, but in, we don't celebrate it as this like painful lesson of America. <laughs> we celebrate it as Monopoly, the game where you get to fuck over, you know, and crush your sister <laughs> in front of your dad. You know, it's just like weird, man. Um, but anywho, we move into the Hasbro years after this point. Um, George Parker died actually back in 1952. The business stayed family owned for another 16 years until it was bought up by General Mills in 1968. In 1985, General Mills merged the company with Kenner, making them Kenner Parker Toys. And this company was acquired by Tonka. Remember Tonka? In 1987. Finally, Tonka, with, uh, which included Parker Brothers, was purchased by Hasbro in 1991 for something to the tune of $516 million. And I should say, the season desist that Anspach got and the mail was from General Mills, because that was the time period in which Mills owned Parker. The DNA of Hasbro wasn't too far off, actually, from Parker Brothers. The company was formed by three brothers in Providence, Rhode Island, back in 1923. Initially, they were selling textile remnants and later school supplies. It was said that they mostly lived on a diet of wood chips. <laughs> Their first toys were made in the 40s, first with modeling clay, then doctor and nurse kits, with their big breakout hit being Mr. Potato Head. Hey. Which is produced, yeah. Jack and loves pieces of metal in a big old potato. He doesn't make anybody fight. He's just fun. <laughs> you just put the stuff on him. He just makes you giggle. He's a good guy. Uh, th- th- they produced that in 1952. Hasbro is the reason that starting in the 90s, you started seeing all of those varying versions of Monopoly that incorporated licensed properties that we were just making fun of. Um, you know, every like major city got their own Monopoly board. Even minor cities got their own Monopoly board. So this board. is fascinating. I desperately wanted to know what the fuck was up with this because it really is just wherever you go, colleges, um, yeah, sports teams, cities, it all kind of just has their own custom version of Monopoly. And, yeah, and like most I, people don't have like vanilla Monopoly. Like most yeah. people have a themed version of Monopoly at this point. And so what I learned is uh, <laughs> there's actually a company called The Op, which started as USAopoly Incorporated. And I reached out to that company and I asked them like, Hi, I'm doing a podcast episode. I would really like to know, like, how did USAopoly or the op, as it's now known, get the license? Are there limits about what uh, there are certain things that uh, you can do to the rule set? It feels like new rules or new additions to the game that alter the rule set are exclusive to Hasbro. Uh, What about other companies like winning games in UK that also produce a lot of special editions? Do you work with them? And uh, of the special editions that USAopoly has made, what are some of the best sellers? Because... USAopoly is the company that makes uh, the Simpsons Monopoly, Big Bang Theory Monopoly, Houston Monopoly, New York Monopoly, 
uh, Mexicoopoly, like every single just space filler version of Monopoly is coming from this one company and I got no answers out of them of what their deal is. I assume they're Funko. They are, they have created this cheap to produce totem of a fandom and are free to just, you know, give the license holders, they give the property owners, the IP owners a cut, they give Hasbro a cut and it is so cheap just to put some plastic houses and a piece of printed cardboard in a cardboard box that they still make plenty of money, even though they make no original games of their own. I mean, we spent well over an hour t- discussing this in our Funko Pop episode, but I love that Monopoly, again, tells the story of the new capitalism wave of at making sure every single piece person feels heard and seen <laughs> and their fandom is represented in this very specific way and by putting out all these different boards. And the value of just a totem, of a physical thing yeah. you can buy to reinforce that fandom. To say, I love this thing. Here is my paying to show how much I love this thing. And it is just such a total representation of so much of capitalism today. Um, Hasbro also added a speed die to the game. You mentioned up thing, uh, mentioned earlier at the very beginning things that could uh, help accelerate the gameplay. Uh, and that is exactly what the speed die did. It would add either a couple of moves or it would push you to certain squares automatically to just get the game flowing way faster. Uh, a fan of public polling, Hasbro took a poll of the best house rules as well and put out a house rules edition of Monopoly during this time. So they did a lot of work to, you know, really switch it up, which they needed to do, honestly. I mean, at this point, it was starting to get stale. Uh, so it, it was really smart of them to do that. And I mean, every board game store, I mean, maybe not like super like Warhammer style, like board game stores, but like, especially if you just go like the one at my mall, that's mm-hmm. just like bo- board games and puzzles. There is always a fucking wall of monopoly. And it is. And I even thought, I remember last time I went in, I was like, man, it's such a shame. This one game takes up so much real estate, you know, because like, it's the er game. It is shorthand yeah. for board game. Right. Exactly. Um, They've since re- I mentioned how infuriatingly cloying the millennial edition is where you collect Ugh. experiences and it's just talking about like, don't get uh, pwned. It's fucking awful. Oh, my uh, God. They made uh, there is the there's yeah, there's blast monopoly, which a uh, chaos monopoly that you're supposed to play all at once with no turn taking. There's the oh, longest Jesus. game of Monopoly that was built to take up as much time as possible. Junior Monopoly, which I remember as a kid, was actually a nice, fun, breezy, kind of simplified version of the game that was better for younger players. Uh, uh-huh. They even did a socialism edition of Monopoly, almost like mocking uh, Lizzie McGee's uh, original vision, where you start playing uh, cooperatively, but any person at any given point can just start fucking people over and win on their own. Um, but there's been so many goddamn versions. Uh, there's a man named Neil Scallon. He's a British man who, uh, is the world record Guinness book of world records, official, uh, biggest monopoly collection who currently owns almost 3,600 copies of monopoly. Wow. All unique editions having been printed from across the world in various versions from across. That's the wild. I wonder what his holy grail is, too. I wonder what that is. I wonder if he has one of the uh, World War II sets. That'd be cool. 
Uh, also, there have been Monopoly tournaments uh, over the years. The first tournaments were held in the early 70s. They tended to happen after a World Chess Championship, kind of on the back of that. But they were held every single year. Um, they did uh, an American tournament as well as uh, the first uh, true multinational international tournament was held in 1975. And from then on, there's also been the international as well as the American. And uh, it's very, you know, yeah, you're, you're not lying about how uh, I, I even realized right after I asked that question like is it specifically American no like anything else like if you look at the winners for the past several years of Monopoly like none of them are American <laughs> uh, it, be, it definitely became very popular in other places uh, there was also the first US championship would ha- which had winners from all 50 states competing for the title um, this uh, interestingly though has not happened since 2015 there was going to be a big tournament, a return to the tournament uh, in 2021, but Hasbro had to cancel it due to the pandemic. But still, interestingly enough, there hasn't been another Monopoly tournament. And like I said, they've been running since the 70s. I mean, we're talking decades and decades of yearly Monopoly tournaments. So it's kind of wild to see uh, there hasn't been one in so long. Does this maybe marking the decline in popularity of uh, the game of Monopoly? I, I don't know, but still, that's the that's the fact. Are millennials killing the Monopoly industry? Uh, who wants to do? I think that if, if there was a generation of people that would be uninterested in, re- in this sort sort of gameplay at this time in the world, when when purchasing property is like the farthest thing from <laughs> anyone's abilities right now in this current job market and everything, I think you might have a point, even though that kind of goes against how it became when it became really popular which was through the great depression so Mm -hmm. i don't know but uh it is it is fascinating i think we are realizing like i think internet culture made everybody realize at once like oh this game just like made all all of our families fight like no one had a good time playing this game like no one actually likes playing this game what the fuck why do we keep playing it? Why is it like in every house? So I did you know? watch uh, a documentary that you can find on YouTube called Under the Boardwalk that uh, follows a lot of the tournament Monopoly players. And with the speed die, the game goes very quickly. Literally, uh, this everyone goes once. And they all they use the speed die? They use the speed die because they have to get through like dozens of games in a, you know within a single event. Interesting. Everybody like... They're all just like weird, like STEM negotiation professional, like just, just, just intensely weird dudes that all think they're like fucking scam lords. Right. Uh, everybody goes once. Everybody lands on their property, completely arbitrary, completely up to luck. Uh, everybody tries to out asshole negotiate each other for a single round. Everybody gets a monopoly and then rolls the dice again. And as soon as you land on someone else's property, you're out. And whoever, by sheer luck. And like maybe you got a good deal in the asshole circle of deals survives. But like the amount, how little skill really matters. Yeah. How little like prep work and strategy goes out the window as soon as you start rolling dice. There are some strategies. There there are certain squares that just are uh, uh, statistically uh, landed on more often. And you can look those up. I didn't write them down. But if oh, you just look up Monopoly strategy. The side of the board is very hard to land on. The go to jail thing um really right like, like limits people. 
And so, so you know, you want to get those properties in particular. Uh, and then the other thing you want to try to do is just definitely get this, or, or at least the second you get three houses on a property is when you actually start making your money back and making a profit. So the other goal, next goal is get it, get th- those three houses Although, as soon as possible. There's a per, there's kind of a myth that you stay at three houses because if there's no more houses on the board. Uh, it'll block people, but the opportunities for that to actually matter are very rare. And so mm. if you can't afford hotels, you should go hotels. Um, holding on to like emergency spending money is a bad move. Mm. You shouldn't do that. You can pretty much ignore utilities. Railroads are a little bit more useful, but not as useful. And uh, there was a rule of thumb that was very popular that you should just ignore boardwalk and park place, but that actually does not pan out statistically. I have definitely lost to the brother with the <laughs> boardwalk park place monopoly yeah. for sure several times. Uh, then uh, you also have a couple more things where then we're going to talk about McDonald's and then uh, wrap it up. But uh, I did want to briefly mention you found I did not know about this TV show. Shout out to Torgo 1985 in the discord. By the way, if you yeah, want to join out, the discord, Steve. just go to Patreon. Find out how weekly study sessions. It's a grand old time, a great place where we discuss and pontificate and really wrap our heads around uh, the topics every week. Absolutely. And he found this TV show Jake's about to talk about. Uh, but uh, also, bizarrely enough, there was a film in development back in the late aughts with Ridley Scott pinned as director. This fell through by 2012, however. This was supposed to be part of the board game cinematic universe that if you remember yes. that shitty Rihanna battleship movie. Yes. It was supposed to all tie into that. It was just we were nutty. We were nutty. In yeah, those, it was in those a weird odds. time. I, w- I do want to see all of those movies come out, though. I mean, that is so like Candyland. I know it was in production and all that good stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I will also say in 2012, a new film has been in the works with Kevin Hart attached to star Great. and Tim Story, director of Barbershop, attached to direct. It is currently in limbo. I think it is a satire uh, type of deal. You know, probably kind of a Jumanji-ish. I hope he becomes the, the Monopoly man or something. He gets tr- transported into Monopoly land or something like that. Uh, what's the deal with the TV show, Jake? So this is a very short-lived television show uh, from Merv Griffin, uh, whose name you might remember from Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. And it is very unexceptional, except for the fact that it had the horniest goddamn theme song I've ever heard. April, if you could play a little bit of this goddamn erotic nightmare that is the Monopoly game show theme song. It's so, ugh, ugh, oh. I hate how horny it is. Now, at this point, um, one might expect me to scream, April hit it, but Jake uh, asked me, uh, please don't just immediately scream, April hit it. And I, I respect my co-host. And I know you you're so waiting much. for me to do it right now. You think I got my finger on the trigger, Jake, but I'm going to respect you, my co-host. If there's one thing that I've come to value is how much you respect my wishes on this podcast. <laughs> Well, respect my wish, and let's talk about uh, this, the McDonald's final and 
hundredth story about America that Monopoly <laughs> conveys just in its weird history. That's right. We've got the scam that was the Monopoly game at McDonald's. If you don't, if you weren't around during this time, it was my favorite ever promotion ever that a company did or whatever. I mean, and for me, it was perfect timing. I was addicted to McDonald's at that time in my life. Which is crazy to me because like I have no, very little interest in McDonald's at this point in my life. But back then, I wanted to eat there as much as I could. I definitely ate there like every like Monday and like Friday or something like that. Like I ate there like at least once a week, oftentimes multiple times a week. So when this promotion hit, you got to you got like a little paper board of the Monopoly game, and you got these stickers with drinks and fries and burgers that Hash were on browns. everything, and you. You'd peel them off. You didn't know what you got, and and some some would say like, "Hey, free whopper, not whopper, right? No, free uh, quarter pounder or something like that." Specifically, like, which was it would awesome. be an item on the menu that didn't come with Monopoly pieces. Specifically, so McDonald's right. by sheer like. By the weirdest luck of all possible, had to give someone free infinite hamburgers somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they also had, you know, Park Place and they had uh, all the all the different ones. Right. And, and you were if you could get, you know, all three properties uh, for any one uh, set, you would get some crazy good prize. And especially if you got Park Place and Boardwalk, didn't you get a million dollars? There was the an instant million dollar prize piece that you could find just out in the open on its own. There was like prizes up uh, to. No, you actually couldn't, but go on. <laughs> what? Oh, well. <laughs> mop, mop. Um, there was uh, cars, there were mansions, there were extravagant vacations. Uh, but yeah, there was always a insanely large prize, I believe. And uh, it got up to $5 million by the end of the promotion. Um, you could take it in a lump sum uh, for less or get a like annuity for over the course of several years. It was basically, the I, like I said, what are the two things Americans reach for in their most absolute emotionally vulnerable place? Scratch off lotto tickets and fast yeah, food. And they found was. a way to combine them. An incredible combination. There was so much hype around these promotions. Like, because you would see the board fill up and you would get yeah. so close. You would get two of every two, one or, you know, two or one of, depending on, you know, bar, boardwalk. Park everybody place. had Park Place. They printed yeah, like park a, place. a jillion Park Places. Like, we all, and so it would get you so excited. You're like, all I need is this one. And of course, you like never would get it. And, no, and you know, there'd be word of mouth of a friend of a friend <laughs> winning something, but no one ever saw anybody win. Turns out the entire thing was a fix there was a documentary i believe on hbo about it that i absolutely loved do you know the guy's name okay so uh, jake the scam was and this is how it worked um the fbi got an anonymous tip claiming that all of these previous winners were related to each other by marriage or by co or second cousin third cousin and that it was suspicious as fuck and they were all tied by a shady character known as uncle jerry and uh the Jerry in question was actually the chief of security for the marketing company that was subcontracted to create the game. The man's name was Jerome P. Jacobson. And uh, what basically how it went down was uh, they used a secure printing company, which is the same. This is how uh, scratch off lotto tickets are made. This is how you know, like there's a reason why this kind of scam doesn't happen anymore or just very rarely. And it's because 
the only guy whose job it is not to do this scam did the scam. (laughs) (laughs) And there were multiple layers of security that they go into in the McMillions documentary. You know, um, the winning pieces are printed on a special line. They're assembled in a envelope and taken by personal security. The people assembling the winning batch doesn't know which sticker is the winner in the batch. It's supposed to be so secure. And what seems to be the chink in the armor is that uh, Jerome Jacobson got a hold of a spare sheet of the security stickers that were supposed to prove that the winning batches weren't tampered with. And so he would take the winning piece for himself, give a dummy envelope with a fake security seal with no winning pieces to the assembly lines at the McDonald's packaging facilities. And he would, through a network of friends, relatives, friends of relatives, relatives of relatives, offer for a lump one-time sum the final winning piece, and they would build a cover story on how they would get them. Um, Eventually, when the uh, circle got a little too uh, uh, dicey, uh, on a chance meeting... (laughs) Uh, Another Jerry, Jerry Colombo of the famous Colombo crime family, one of the five organized crime families of New York City. Uh, After meeting Jerry Colombo at an airport, he now got access to an entire mob network of uh, accomplices that he could work with. All in all, when the FBI finally uh, like was ready to strike, there was something like 22 different. uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. 53 indictments of which 48 pled guilty. The story on how they actually got caught a lot of these conspirators is very interesting. The FBI set up an undercover fake video production company with the help of McDonald's marketing team in order to like interview the people and like try and find gaps in their story and figure out how they were related to each other. Uh, It was uh, insanely, it should be its own movie. Supposedly, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were supposed to make a fictionalized version of this story. Yeah, they somebody should for sure. The doc is great and it's a crazy story. And, you know, the the that we were all hoodwinked collectively as a society. I mean, I cannot tell you. I think there's never been a more popular promotion for a- no, McDonald's. Literally, the reason why it was so ever present is because for very little cost, McDonald's could increase the attendance and sales of their entire uh, restaurants for just like any time because it would just compel yeah. people to come in. Because they did it multiple times, by the way. They 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 ran the promotion like several, and every time it would come back, it would, it would I would be so excited. Like it was perfect timing for me. I was a kid, you know. It was the, the what the two, late nineties, early aughts, whatever. I I just loved it, and 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 then and then the fact that like no one even really knows. I mean, if you're aware of the documentary, you know it's a scam, but it's not something that's like largely talked about, you know. And so it's just kind of mind blowing how how many people were duped. And once again, just to further hammer home how the story of Monopoly really just like paints in highlight, just pulls a fucking hotel blacklight and reveals all the fucking jizz stains on our collective economic system. Good Lord. The one thing that like the one (laughs) idea of collective prizes of collective benefits that like most Americans are okay with is the lottery is the idea that like, Okay, well, nobody gets anything for free, but if you get really lucky, that's a fun story and that's fair. That's cool. And even then, 
even then that itself is gamed for the select insiders to just like enrich their own personal circle. Like it's Absolutely. just so fucking so this episode the false promise this of wealth episode really did a number on me holden it really yeah. fucked me up it's a great one man it's a great we accidentally chose a killer topic we had no neither neither of us had any idea how how deep this ran i have a great quote to finish off uh this episode jake are you ready for it uh are There's you ready to call one it a day? thing one thing i forgot and that is the marvin gardens on the monopoly board is spelled with an i but Marvin Gardens, the town in Atlantic City that it was based on, is spelled with an E. And that was a typo on Charles Todd's version of the game that he originally showed to Charles Darrow. Oh, yeah. So, so just like, it's, the it's just like the smoking gun that he fucking stole it. Perfect. Line and sinker. Also, what, another beautiful thing about Lizzie McGuire's game that I didn't realize until doing this research was... Instead of a funny cartoon of a rich man getting bitten the butt by a dog or whatever is on those chance cards, uh, McGee would attach inspirational phrases by famous figures to uh, hit home the lessons of a more equitable society, including Thomas Jefferson, who on his card, it said, the earth belongs to be of use to the living. Uh, John Ruskin, who says it begins to be asked on many sides how the possessors of the land became possessed of it. And even Andrew Carnegie himself, on his card, it says, the greatest astonishment of my life was the discovery that the man who does the work is not the man who gets rich. Ha, amazing. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. This is a, and this is a quote forever. I have from the, an article in The New Yorker. The union makes us strong. It's no surprise that American capitalism both subverted McGee's critique and destroyed her legacy. Monopoly's politics are transparent. Each player starts with the same amount of cash and opportunities, even though in real life, race, class, gender, and a range of other factors inflect a person's chance of success. The game disguises luck as skill, misrepresents the American dream, and promises wealth and power at the expense of others. Only in its final moments do we see the victor's most enduring reward. Isolation. Ooh. There will be blood. <laughs> and a guy gets beaten to death in the face with a bowling, with pin. A bowling pin. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been our episode on Monopoly. Man, a lot of skeletons in that closet. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, enjoyment's an interesting word. Uh, we're as horrified as we were. Uh, All right, wait, regardless, before, before we wrap up, I just want to say, Listen, I'm not a full-blown communist, all right? I am not a fucking, <laughs> like, oh, da, 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 like, USSR fucking guy. But, like, no matter how fucking much you love capitalism, you just got to look around you and just be like, okay, we can tweak uh, the dials a little bit. Things have, are not working the way they're supposed to be working. Like, you got to yeah. just, like... You got to admit that we're like in a place where we can fix some things. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Uh, and if you want to fix our lives, please go to Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Weekly bonus content for just $5 a month. We recently did a tier list for cereals. It got heated. The reactions have been intense, to say the least. You said a lot of things about Cocoa Puffs that I feel like you sh should be taking back. I, I have to try Reese's Puffs now, apparently. This is really, <laughs> really... I cannot... And 
endure the harassment anymore. Also, check out, uh, if you want, on our $15 tier, you can join us for the Sunday study sessions. We're going to be watching Keanu Reeves movies this week. Oh, I'm very excited yeah. for that. And last but not least, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Right now, I'm streaming every single day. I'm on a stream streak. I'm going to go at least till the end of the month. But usually, I'm at the very least streaming Monday through Friday. So check me out there. Last but not least for me, not last but not least for Jake. Jake! Uh, hey, follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. Same name on uh, Instagram at Best Jake Young. And uh, hey, I also do a, a streamy thing. I do a VTuber cartoon watch-along stream, lovingly referred to as the Cartoon Dumpster. It is uh, hours of laughs and oddities and just a deep dive into just the weirdest cartoons of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. We've had a really good run lately. And hey, if you like this stream, I guarantee you'll like that. So Thursdays, 7 p.m. over on twitch.tv slash puppetjared or youtube.com slash puppetjared if you're a nine-year-old. I don't know. But please, come on out. Have fun. It's a great time. All right. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.